Extraordinary. Leader. Innovative. Integrity. Honest. Courageous. Curious. Thoughtful. Brave. Unafraid. There is a place where technology and art meet, where work and play are one and the same. When the threads of curiosity are pulled in this place, the spark of innovation ripples across industries. Those who make this place their home are giants, titans who pursue creative passion while leaving their mark. Creative. Flexible. Brilliant. Clever. Confident. They are courageous thought leaders set on changing the practice of dentistry and their corner of the world. More than the sum of their parts, we deconstruct the traits that bind these uncommon innovators. Humble, daring, disciplined, playful, principled, spontaneous. To discover what makes them contrary to ordinary, where we explore the extraordinary. Hi there. I'm Dr. Kim Cooch, host and founder at Carry Free. I'm fascinated by what makes the paradigm shifters, world shakers, and art makers tick. Let's embark on a journey. Extraordinary is a place where ordinary people choose to exist. Together, we will trek the peaks of possibility, illuminate the depths of resilience, and navigate the boundless landscape of innovation. To discover how some of the most innovative dentists and thought leaders unlock their potential, and became extraordinary. On Contrary to Ordinary, we explore the motivation, lives, and the character of the innovators who see limitless potential around them, the people behind some of the largest paradigm shifts in the practice of dentistry and beyond. I want to start this episode a little differently by telling you a story about today's guest. We were sitting in his car after a lovely weekend of wine tasting in the Barossa Valley in Southern Australia. He turned to me and asked, Kim, how do you diagnose dental caries? I replied that you use a microscope, digital radiographs, and caries detection dye, amongst other things. His reply was, that's how you identify lesions, but I want to know how do you diagnose dental caries? Well, I couldn't come up with an answer. He then suggested to me that caries were actually a disease and that diseases can be diagnosed. Something switched on in my head, and I never looked back. I can honestly say that today's guest, Professor Hien No, inspired me to think differently that day, and has continued to be a source of wisdom and guidance ever since. Hien is the retired dean and head of the dental school and director of Oral Health Center at the University of Western Australia. He is an educator who has taught about minimal intervention dentistry and karyology all over the world. Hien also has an amazing backstory. He was born in Vietnam, right in the middle of the war. I was born during the war. So in a way, when you grow up during a war time, you adapt to it and you don't feel that the war is going on. That's the war's normal life. I still remember at 17, that's the end of the war in 1975, I was uh, evacuated as a refugee to the Philippines, to an American Air Force base. It's called the Guam Air Base. And uh, the first night we got out, that's when I appreciate, I said something is really strange. It's so quiet. It's so disturbingly quiet because my whole life, rocket be coming to the left and missile going to the right. And now looking at what's happening in Ukraine, I can fully sympathize with people. So then you managed to go on what happened after that? After Guam, I went to Little Rock, Arkansas, is Fort Chaffee, 
uh, army camp, I think. That's where our paperwork was processed. Then my father got a job in New York City, so I went there with him for a year. But during a while we were in Guam, my, our family got split up. Where my sister, my older sister, got sent to Australia. So, how did you decide to become a dentist? Both of my sisters, that there's only three of us in the family, and both of my sisters are the, uh, doctors. Oh wow! Yeah. So when it came to my turn, I, I asked my sister for advice. I said, "What should I do?" And the simple logic was that, "Oh, we we need a dentist in the family. <laughs> so why don't you do go and do dentistry?" <laughs> <laughs> but as as a new arrival, a new migrant to a country, you don't really have a clear idea what you want to be. Just just do what the system allows you to do. So who were some of your mentors early in life, Ian? Oh, the most impactful, two most impactful mentors to me were uh, Dr. Graham Mount, the guru in uh, glass animal cement and minimal intervention dentistry. Right. Yeah, and another mentor for, of mine is uh, Dr. John McIntyre. He's in charge of the karyology program in Adelaide. Uh-huh. And he was doing amazing work. Things like, uh, why don't we put fluoride in sugar? Right. <laughs> uh, and maybe that will have an impact. Instead, only, not only in water, but in sugar. And I remember we applied for a research grant to the Australian Sugar Board. And our application was rejected because there's no link between sugar and caries. So right. why would we research that? Oh <laughs> that, my that, was a, that was a comment that came back to us. Oh, my goodness. How, how many, I mean, what year was that? Oh, that being about 1985, 86. Wow. And that, that's the same situation with smoking and cigarette manufacturer, Kim. Yeah, I mean, uh, they wouldn't have accepted that there's a link between smoking and lung cancer. So, you know, what what, what makes you think that sugar has anything to do with caries? <laughs> I mean, we've dealt with that, you know, from a political standpoint in the U.S. from way back in the 50s and 60s, you know, with yeah. the sugar lobby. That's not a unique problem to run into. Research is always influenced by politics, you know. That's right, because politics influence funding for research. When you think about them, what kind of qualities about those mentors kind of stand out for you? A couple of qualities about them. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is both of them are very patient. I mean, for them to deal with me. Right. (laughs) It's a proof that they have a lot of patience. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and they were very generous. Uh I mean, uh, they guide me, they help me in my career without me even realizing it until much later. It opened so many doors. Mentors play such an important role in everybody's life. And I think, I mean, I've said this so many times, but I think that in today's society, we really undervalue mentors. I always tell uh, my students at the dental school here, I said the most important quality in our graduate is what we call care. So it is an acronym. So it's C for compassion, I is altruism, R is respect, and E is excellence. I can teach them most of it, but I cannot teach them altruism because that is inbuilt in them. And the only way that we can mentor somebody is through example, not by teaching, not by forcing them. We have to really shine as an example 
and be the beacon for others to follow. That's the secret to mentorship. And to be a good mentor, you shouldn't really try to influence the way a person thinks by telling them, but just show them. I totally agree that showing, not telling, is the key to successful mentorship. As the great American author William Arthur Ward said, the mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, the great teacher inspires. A common thread in my conversations with extraordinary people is that they are always looking to give back to the world. To give back to society, um, to do things that is right, uh-huh. and to stand up for the weak. For the people who don't have a voice. Yes. Yeah. You think that comes from, your, from growing up the way you did? My father always instilled that in me. When you live in a war-torn country, those values come back because you can lose everything, but those inbuilt values should, should stay. You know, he and I'm looking at, oh, gosh, I've looked, <laughs> looked at your CV and there isn't much you haven't done or an award that you haven't won or been recognized for. And I was just sitting there taking notes and I'm thinking like, he is truly a child of the world. You know, you left war-torn Vietnam and then you became like this global citizen. You were in private practice and you started at Adelaide. Then you went to teach in the dental school at Singapore. Then you came back to Australia, to Queensland. And then from there, you went to Kuwait. Yes. I got that right. And then yep. the United Arab Emirates. Yes, correct. And now you're back to back to Perth. You keep coming back to Australia. So Australia must feel like home to you. Yeah, Australia is, is my true home, physical home. Right. Uh, but my home in my heart is Vietnam. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you still have family in, Viet- in Vietnam, Ian? Yeah, I, I go back to Vietnam quite regularly to uh, work with dental school in Vietnam. How many dental schools are in Vietnam? There's uh, 98 million people and 13 dental schools. Sounds like they need more dental schools. The problem is in some of the developing country, accreditation is not a big thing. Yeah. So when you talk about 13, the quality of teaching is uh, very, very wide. Right. And varied. Yeah. yeah. So before we build more, we need to standardize it and make sure that there's a benchmark. Yeah. And everybody's being taught well and being taught to yeah. the same level. Yeah. Creating a standard of excellence in Hien's home country is a worthy goal. In the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago that the creation of the ADA sought to do the same thing on the other side of the world. Hien has shared his expertise with probably thousands of students at this point. But for his next move, he's actually planning to return to the clinic in a public hospital. What I want to do is uh, really setting up a unit that uh, manage patients with high caries, uh-huh. active caries, and erosion. So uh, we prepare the patient before other people, other departments will give them their restorative care and other cares. Uh-huh. And then we'll take them back and do the maintenance for them. 
All right. Because I find that it's very difficult for, for restorative dentists to change their mindset and start thinking about managing patients. It's, they find it's too much and, and they're good at their hands. Let them do that. And, and, and I will work with uh, a team to take care of the disease, as you put it, at the beginning. Yeah, that's still the missing piece is getting that, I guess, that knowledge transferred to clinical practice, right? Like we know that we need to be doing that. Or let me just say, we know that that provides better outcomes. You know, going upstream, treating the disease provides a much better outcome for the patients. And we just need to get that integrated into like daily practice everywhere. The missing piece in uh, dentistry, clinical dentistry, is what I call true application of translational concept. You observe what happened in the mouth, you take it to the bench sub to do your research, and then you find application solution, and you bring it back to the mouth for application, full circle of translational. We have not been doing that as far as managing disease is concerned. Not the entire profession. There's a huge need, and we need to, we need as a profession to kind of get a grip on that. But mind you, with people like yourself and Doug and John Featherstone in the U.S., I've seen that you guys have been very successful because when I first go back and lecture in the U.S., we talk about minimal intervention dentistry. We talk about preventive dentistry. People were not interested. Then you guys start the movement and you created Canberra and, and it's no bowling, Right. We're making movement. We are advancing the ball. Yes. You know. Yes, you are. You you are bouncing the ball. And that's why in the latest edition of the textbook, we actually made a point to go back and invite American uh, writers, authors, to contribute to that textbook. And, and, and it works. Kim, I, I still remember a story you tell people. You have a driveway and you have a car with a flat tide with some nails on the pathway, and if you don't remove the nail, you keep having the flat ties, right? Yep. You used that in your lectures in the early days. I still remember. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, I used that as an analogy just to help people understand. If you just keep drilling and filling cavities, and that's all you do, the patient's going to continue to get cavities. And until you stop and figure out why they're getting cavities and treat that instead, and then they stop getting cavities, and then... Everybody gets healthy and life is good, right? Yeah. 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 So for, for me, when I talk to the lay person, my patient, uh-huh. I use an analogy that if a person dies of a heart attack, is a heart attack a disease? <laughs> and patients tend to make a mistake. Yes, it's a disease. And I don't know. A heart attack is an event that happened to kill the patient. The disease is imbalance in lifestyle, cardiovascular disease over the last 30 years that that didn't get attended to. Often, all you need is a little change in thinking to help the patient understand the importance of dental health in the longer term. He and has accomplished many different things and has been a trailblazer in dentistry. But what did he see as his proudest achievement? To be able to help uh, my mentors, Graham Mount and John McIntyre, to, uh, to bring reality to their dream of introducing minimal intervention dentistry to the world, was able to bring that not only in Australia, my homeland, 
but to be able to bring it to foreign land like the Middle East. And it got accepted there. I mean, the reason why I went to Kuwait was one day when I was working in uh, University of Queensland in Australia, I received a phone call from the deans in University of Kuwait. And they said, I attended one of your lectures and I want you to come over and help us implement it into our clinic. Wow. Uh, I was so proud when, when I hear that because, you know, and I said he was sitting at the back of the room listening to this and I said, I want that in my clinic to make a real impact on the quality of care that we're providing to the patient. That's what triggered my move to the Middle East. So how did that go there? Did they get mental intervention dentistry and prevention pretty well organized there? Yeah, but, uh, you know, there are two things that's very important with the school there. And you realize that Kuwait is a very, very uh, rich country. Right. So if they want to do something, I mean, money has never stopped them. And, and the dean was uh, Dr. Bebehani, the man of vision. Uh, the dental school that he set up there is... I, I always said to him, this is a fantasy land, the toys that he has and everything. And, and, but he also have the vision of making an impact on patient life. So instead of allowing the specialists, different specialty to run the dental course, he created a department of general dental practice in his school. I mean, many schools have done that. But over there, uh, they run the show. Yeah. Because for dentists training you, you just want to train dentists with the basic skill first, right? Uh-huh. Not yeah. specialist skills. So there's kind of been some challenges for you along the way going through all this. How do you deal with challenges in your life? Challenges is a very simple. You, I, I use the, the principle of uh, evidence-based dentistry. The uh, acronym is called PICO, P-I-C-O. Okay, P is what as a problem, define it, right? Then what are the intervention? There's a full range of intervention. There's never a single one. Then for that patient, you have to compare all the intervention and say which one would be effective for this individual. Uh Then the last uh, letter in the acronym is O for outcome. You need to know the outcome so that you can measure the effectiveness of the intervention that you selected. One, if you don't achieve that income, you go back to the beginning again and you look at other intervention, you devise a new approach to it, and what output that we measure. The problem in convincing patients that they should listen to us is we're not clear now outcome. So if I ask you, uh, what outcome are you trying to achieve to know that this patient has been stabilized in caries, is no longer active? What are the outcomes? There's immediate outcome and there's long-term outcome. And we need to negotiate with the patient so that the outcome is acceptable for both sides. And then we monitor in the practice, but we allow the patient to monitor at home because our objective in treating complex disease is to turn a change of behavior into a habit. If the patient do not see that and do not receive positive reinforcement on a daily basis, it's not going to turn a change of behavior to a habit. And that's why we see we fail all the time. Patient will listen to you for a week or two, and then I don't see any difference. You know, Ian, you bring up a really good point there, just 
outcomes, you know, and we as a profession have never really measured our care by outcomes. That's right. Right. I mean, we do individually that happens. I think driving goals is is always to think about what's the outcome going to be and are we providing a better outcome? Is this better than what we had before? Is it a better outcome for the patient? But the outcome have to be personalized to the patient so they understand the value of what you do. There's no point talking about your outcome. We have to talk about our outcome between us and the patient. We have to have a common outcome in mind. Yeah. So that we can plan and move forward. Dr. John Coyce is a strong advocate for improving patient outcomes. Delivering a higher quality of life is a guiding principle that we, as practitioners, strive for. With the transition back to the clinic on the horizon, I wonder what specifically excites Hien about his work these days. There's a few changes, a few little projects that I... Um I'm working on, that might change the way we teach in dental school. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, for example, now, if you look at the gap we have in preparing students before they get into the clinic, one of the gap is in the optech clinic, we tend to teach them skills, uh, hard skills, surgical skills. They have to cut the cavity and all that. But they are not prepared with enough soft skill to go and face a patient. So if they look at an x-ray, how does that x-ray reflect on, you know, on the plastic tooth that you see? Right. How do you detect caries? How do you detect lesions? All of that they learn for the first time when they see patients. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Because the, the optic don't actually cover that. It could cover how to cut the cavity, how to do a crown preps. Oh, and we're really good at that. And, it's, and that's, I think, in some regard, that's easier to teach than the soft skills. That's right. I think, you know, when, when we talk about any complex chronic disease, which carries imperio would fall into that category. Both are, yeah. We have to realize that the result is happening at home, not in the office. Because we cannot do everything for the patient. They are the one who actually, I can write a script, but they have to choose to take the medicine. And they have to understand what's the outcome. Do I feel better? Or do I need to go back to the doctor to get a check again? So I think those are very important to realize that the battle is fought at home. Hi, contrary to ordinary listeners, we're going to take a short break from this conversation for our segment, Questions with Dr. Kim. Don't go anywhere. In this segment, I'll answer a listener's question about their dental health. If you have a dental question that you want answered, then send it to podcast at carryfree.com. That's podcast at carryfree spelled C-A-R-I-F-R-E-E dot com and add questions with Dr. Kim in the subject line. If your question gets read out on the show, then we'll send you a small gift to say thanks for checking in. This week's question reads, Hi Kim, I've seen a few articles online about brushing your tongue as well as your teeth. Is this something I should be doing? If so, what's the best type of dental product to use? 
Thanks so much for the question. Yes, it's generally good practice to brush your tongue as part of your daily oral hygiene routine. Brushing your tongue helps remove bacteria, food particles, and dead cells that can contribute to bad breath or halitosis and affect your overall oral health. You can brush your tongue with your toothbrush while you are brushing your teeth by extending your tongue gently but comfortably. Gently brush your tongue from back to front. You could also select to use a tongue scraper. To use a scraper, extend your tongue and gently scrape from back to front. Avoid using excessive force to prevent irritation or damage to the tongue sensitive tissue. You might also use an antimicrobial or antibacterial mouthwash after brushing your tongue, which further help reduce bacteria in your mouth and freshen your breath. It's a good idea to clean your tongue once a day, preferably in the morning or as part of your regular brushing routine. Cleaning your tongue can improve your overall oral hygiene, reduce the risk for bad breath, and promote a healthier mouth. However, if you experience persistent bad breath despite regular tongue cleaning and good oral hygiene habits, it's a good idea to consult with your dental professional. Chronic bad breath can sometimes be a sign of an underlying dental or medical issue that requires attention and treatment. And if you, dear listener, would like more information on all things dental, then head to carryfree.com where we've got more resources on dental health and our line of carry-free products that can help you keep a healthy smile. Let's get back to the conversation. So you're starting to, you're working on a project then to, to implement that kind of, those soft skills into the dental school curriculum. That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm trying to work that and I'm, I'm actually uh, collaborating with uh, a, lot, a few dental schools in Southeast Asia, and we're going to do that as a as a consortium. Uh-huh. Oh, awesome! Then you can all share ideas and share and share results and challenges and and across culture. Yeah. Uh, what 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 I learned in my career as I move around is understanding the different cultures and how to address how people different culture respond to different uh, prompt. Uh, that is very important. So by having a consortium across countries, you understand how to break barriers. Yeah, you know, it, you bring up a really good point. And I've done quite a bit of teaching in Japan. And it's really interesting to me to watch them work because the dentist literally never says a word to the patient. <laughs> That's right. True. They don't talk. I mean, I don't talk to them at all. And, you know, in, in my practice, I mean, I... I like to talk. I'm curious. So I'm talking all the time to my patient, but I'm telling them what I'm doing. And, you know, we're going through that whole process. And you have, you build a rapport and a relationship with your patients, right? And in Japan, it's more of a commodity transactional kind of relationship. And it's because they don't talk to them. They don't develop a relationship with them because they, they just don't talk. But it's that's a cultural thing. But uh, you see, if you think of yourself as a surgeon, Mm-hmm. You don't need to talk. Right. You're just doing surgery. If you think yourself as a physician, you have to talk. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's a really good point. But the first time I saw that in Japan, I love Japan. I, I have so many friends there. I absolutely love that country. But it was kind of surprising to me, kind of, kind of this idiosyncrasy of here's a country that is so relationship based, right? Like, 
you go into business and you do things in Japan and these people become family. Yeah. Like it's relationship based. And at the end of the day, it's not about checks and balances and your, and your balance sheet. It's about your relationship. And then I walked into the, into the dental practices and that doesn't get, that doesn't get transferred to, to the dentist patient relationship, which I found was just, I found that really curious. Um, you know, but anyway, that's, but I, I tell you, for me, that was a real, eye-opener for just the cultural differences, you know, between countries and, be, and between cultures, uh, even with, you know, even in the same country as well, but uh, fascinating stuff. Well, good for you, Ian. That sounds like a really exciting project. So are you working on that right now, or is that something that's coming up here when you retire from your current position in June? Oh, no, no. I, I've, been, uh, I've been working on it for the last couple of years, but, but this is uh, really, really gaining momentum. So I, I, I'm looking forward to in my retirement, I'll have uh-huh. more time. <laughs> I'm not moving into retirement, yeah. really. I'm, 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 re, I'm stopping working full time through a job, but I'm sure I'm going to be very busy doing things that I like to do. Yeah, you absolutely will. And you're going to stay busy. You're not going to be sitting on your thumbs. I know that about you. But you'll, be, but you'll have the freedom and the flexibility to do some of these things that are really important to you. And I think in retirement, that's probably the, the greatest gift of, of quote unquote retirement is just having flexibility to really focus on things that you value or are really important to you. And I think certainly what you're talking about here is legacy type issues, making a difference, uh, giving back to society, you know, all of those things. And so, yeah, you're going to have a great time. We would only give back to society because we care, you see. C-A-R-E again. I love that acronym. I like that acronym a lot. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that, but I'm going to give you credit for it. Maybe it's a trade market. <laughs> <laughs> only kidding. What goals do you have from here out then? Uh, you're headed back to Adelaide. Do you have any other goals for your life that from here on out? Sounds like you're going to be pretty busy. I still want to be going back to Vietnam and, and help build up dentistry there. I do a fair bit of work with dental school in Southeast Asia uh-huh. because I don't want to travel long distance anymore. It's too hard to sit on, on a plane for a long period of time. <laughs> and the jet lag is, is harder as you get older. So what I do is I look around Australia and anything that I can reach within five hours and I'd be interested in anything beyond that's a little bit too hard. Oh, I've got a disease, and it's called golf. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a bad disease. And again, there's no cure. I know, there's no cure of it. <laughs> I'm actually go back and then do a um, course in theology. I started that last year, but I'm uh, too busy with this current job to continue with it. And so I go back to Adelaide, I will pick up and try to finish that. And the education project on the preclinical teaching, the soft skill. So the, the theology class, you're taking the class. Yes, yes. Yeah. Would you consider yourself a spiritual person, Ian? Oh, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. Uh-huh. So that's one of your characteristics. That's why I don't believe in luck. Yeah, yeah. I stopped saying... Good luck, I say, be blessed. Yeah. <laughs> I like that as well, Ian. Absolutely be blessed. So if you could go back and talk to your 25-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give yourself? 
I would say, oh, that's a tough question, Kim. I would tell myself that uh, don't try so hard and don't rush too much. Even though on the outside, when you look at my career where I've been so busy doing different things, different right. countries, uh, it takes a toll. Yeah. I would not go back and, and, and be so hyperactive. You can be a clinician, you can be a researcher, and you can be a teacher, but try to do all that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try to be all three at the same time. <laughs> which, which I did for a while. <laughs> yeah, I know you did, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a really good point. Slow down, enjoy life. It goes by pretty fast, doesn't it? That's right. And, and focus on doing things that is impactful. Yeah, that are making a difference. Invest your time wisely because all of us have limited time. And that's the rarest commodity. It cannot be wasted and just focus on it. And, and then you will say, do what? Or I'll do things that good, that put back to society. It's good to be reminded that our time is limited and that we have to do our best with this finite resource. I think that Hian has spent his time in an amazing way, touching thousands of lives across the world. Thank you so much, Professor Hian No, for joining me today. And thank you for coming on this journey with me today. Here we aim to inspire and create connections. We can't do it without you. If this conversation moved you, made you smile, or scratched that little itch of curiosity today, please share it with the extraordinary people in your life. And if you do one thing today, let it be extraordinary. <music>